Good day and welcome to How Dish Could Disrupt the U.S. Wireless Market. Today's call is being recorded, and at this time I would like to turn things over to Jonathan Chaplin. Please go ahead. Good morning, all, and thanks for joining us in what, for many of you, is already a busy earnings season. Um, I'm joined on the call by my research team, Spencer and Vivek, as well as Blair Levin. Uh, Blair is going to be available in case you have any regulatory questions uh, towards the end of the call, and also by Ethan Lacey. Um, I think we've done some interesting work on DISH's wireless network economics and the potential for DISH to disrupt wireless market pricing. I thought it might be valuable to quickly walk through the work we've done on this call. Based on the conversations I've had yesterday, the work is certainly controversial. We're not finished with it yet. We really want your feedback as we continue to refine this analysis. And with that in mind, we'll open it up for questions at the end. Feel free to dial in or to email Ethan, as always, at ethan.lacy at newstreetresearch.com. We won't have answers to all of your questions at this stage because we're still working through the analysis ourselves. But the engagement and the debate is really valuable as we continue to evolve this analysis. Starting off on slide two, we drew four main conclusions from the work that we've done so far. So number one, DISH could have a lower unit cost than four national carriers today if they build a network to deploy it, their spectrum. This low unit cost paves the way for DISH to price its capacity at levels that existing carriers would have a very hard time matching. They've got close to 20% of the industry's capacity. Um, in a best-case scenario for the industry, they fill this net, their network at the expense of all the other carriers. The worst-case scenario, industry pricing comes down too. Number two, DISH doesn't have the resources to build a network and absorb the operating losses today, but we argue that if they can build a network with a cost advantage, then they're going to find the capital. There are institutions and companies with economic as well as strategic incentives to back the deployment of a new low-cost network. Point number three, if DISH has a cost advantage and the requisite capital, then they can disrupt the market. This doesn't mean that they will choose to price their capacity at, at disruptive levels, but we suspect they will based on what we think their DNA is. The companies that we think are most likely to back a build would certainly have an interest in them pricing aggressively. And number four, these statements all hold true if DISH were to deploy a network on their own with no help from T-Mobile or from deal concessions. If you flip to slide three, the deal, the Sprint T-Mobile deal um, and concessions that and, and divestitures that DISH might extract from that deal help DISH in a few important ways. So number one, and, and by far the most important, it results in new build-out requirements for their spectrum, we'd presume, which in turn secures DISH's ownership of their spectrum. This makes it far easier for DISH to raise capital, find partners and future tenants for the network. Point number two, they may pick up some more spectrum in the process, which would drive their unit costs lower still. Every 10 megahertz of 2.5 gigahertz spectrum they acquire from T-Mobile would lower their unit cost by about another 10%. Point number three, they may get a network hosting deal with T-Mobile as well. That was something that was reported in the press last week. 
and this could materially de-risk and accelerate the network deployment. It would also lower their unit costs further still, and that's something we'll focus on towards the end of the call. And number four, they may pick up subs and MVNO and, and a national roaming deal, which I would regard as valuable potentially, but the least valuable things arising from this deal. In fact, from a focus perspective, I'd, I'd really think of it as the costs required to acquire the other benefits that we've listed above. They'll do this deal because of the other benefits, not because uh, of the boost subs and the MVNO they get. Flipping to side number four, there are two components to Dish's cost advantage. Number one, they'll have more capacity than peers. Number two, they'll have a lower network cost. Taken together, these factors result in Dish having a unit cost that's just 25% of Verizon's unit cost today, assuming that all networks are fully loaded. This, in turn, is what paves the way for them to be disruption. Starting with the capacity analysis on this slide, DISH has about 100 megahertz spectrum, which is roughly the same as Verizon and T-Mobile today, but DISH has more downlink capacity than Verizon and T-Mobile, which is where all the network constraints are. And so from a downlink capacity perspective, they've got an advantage. Slide number five, DISH will deploy all of their spectrum with 5G, while the other carriers have spectrum spread across 2G, 3G, 4G, um, and, and just a tiny bit allocated to 5G. This means DISH's spectrum is 40% more productive than the other carrier's spectrum is today. This gap's going to narrow over time as the other carriers refund their spectrum and move it over to 5G. But even five years out, DISH is going to have a very significant productivity advantage over the rest of the carriers. Slide number six, if we put these two factors together and assuming equal access nodes across carriers, DISH would have 60% more capacity than Verizon and T-Mobile. They'd have less than Sprint, but Sprint's capacity has never been fully deployed, and we don't think it ever would be on a standalone basis. Slide number seven, moving to network cost, this is where we've done, I think, the most important work. We've built our cost analysis for DISH with the input of a group of network engineers, most of whom have previously worked at one of the carriers um, or at the vendors um, to the carriers. We estimate that it would cost DISH a little less than $14 billion to build a 70,000 cell site network. They wouldn't need to build a 70,000 cell site network to launch the business. A good deal of a typical carrier 70,000 cell sites are capacity cell sites. They could get national coverage for well less than $10 billion based on our analysis. This is just focusing on the $14 billion for a comparable, a network with comparable density to T-Mobile's and Verizon's they would have a fraction of the embedded cost of the other carriers' networks. And their advantage stems from two things. Number one, DISH is building a single 5G network. The other carriers have a 2G network, which they built a 3G network on top of, and then built a 4G network on top of that. And they're now adding a 5G network to their other three networks. Um, they've got two decades' worth of equipment spread across those uh, those four networks that all have to be maintained. Um, having a, uh, a single network with brand-new state-of-the-art equipment is much, much cheaper to create 
then to create all of the legacy layers of network that the carriers have built organically over time. Number two, we think DISH plans to virtualize their network, which means putting much of the intelligence in a handful of data centers, which drives a fairly significant amount of both equipment and labor costs, um, and it drives costs in other areas as well. Of these two sources of savings, by far the biggest um, is the fact that they're going to have a single network um, against peers who have multiple networks to maintain. Moving to slide eight, DISH's network OPEX would be lower than the other carriers, too, largely for the same reasons. One network virtualized. DISH's network OPEX of $4.5 billion uh, would be roughly half of Verizon's. Moving on to slide nine, on the right side, we combine network OPEX and maintenance CAPEX to arrive at an ongoing network cost. For maintenance CAPEX, we're assuming they have to replace gross PP&E over about 15 years. More capacity on the left side with lower network costs on the right side drives a much lower unit cost. And on slide 10, we quantify what that unit cost is. And on the capacity framework we sort of used to do this analysis, uh, DISH would end up with a 25, with a unit cost that's 25% of Verizon's and roughly 45% of AT&T's and T-Mobile's. I would just caveat the slide with saying calculating capacity on a network, on a carrier's network is very difficult and a lot of assumptions have to go into it. What I would focus here on here is not the dollar value that we've assigned to a gigabyte of capacity, but the relative relationship between the uh, between the carriers. Um, on slide number 11, to give you an example of how disruptive they could be if they priced their capacity at a 50% gross margins, the other carriers just couldn't match them. They'd all be making negative gross margin uh, if they tried. And remember that they've got another 20 to 30 cents in SG&A per gigabyte to support over and above their their network OPEX. Slide number 12, we estimate that in 2024, assuming improvements in spectral efficiency and and improvements in, in how spectrum is allocated across all carriers, it would have close to 20% of the industry's capacity. Slide number 13, the most common question we get is, where's DISH going to find the capital to fund this project? Um, they've got a struggling DBS business today that most would regard as over-levered. Very simplistically, if they capture close to 20% of the industry's enterprise value, they create about $100 billion of additional value. They may need $10 billion to build a network and another $10 billion to fund operating losses. They should be able to find the capital in the context of $100 billion in value creation. Even if they're coming in, their entry into the market lowers the value of the overall market, there's still a significant opportunity for DISH here. Remember that DISH's spectrum is unencumbered except for the convert. They should be able to raise $20 billion against the spectrum once the ownership of that spectrum is settled. And that's why this this deal with um, T-Mobile is so important if it allows DISH to get new build-out requirements on its spectrum. Slide 14, any company with a business or product that's delivered over a network has a strategic interest in seeing a new low-cost network deployed. 
the value of all of these businesses rise if connectivity costs fall, regardless of whether the companies themselves pay those connectivity costs or consumers do. Moreover, if Dish builds a network, it's going to accelerate investment across the rest of the industry. And all companies that have a, a product or service delivered over a network have a strategic interest in seeing more investment in the industry as well. Many of these companies have hundreds of billions of dollars of cash sitting on their balance sheet. They may not have to fund DISH directly, though, even if companies on the list committed to future capacity purchases, it would make it that much easier for DISH to raise capital in the public markets. Slide number 15, everything we have spoken about so far assumes DISH builds this network on their own. Um, I would stress that DISH has the ability to disrupt the wireless, the, the wireless market without the benefits of any concessions or divestitures from T-Mobile Sprint. Um, so what does a T-Mobile Sprint, Sprint deal potentially bring to them? Number one, uh, it potentially eliminates the risk around their build-out requirements, which is the single most important source of value from the Sprint T-Mobile deal, in our view. It'll be tough for a dish to raise capital or find partners until the ownership of their spectrum is settled. Number two, it may bring them more spectrum, which would lower their unit costs further. I think I outlined earlier, every 10 megahertz of 2.5 gets them another 10% drop in, in network cost um, per unit of, of capacity on a fully loaded network. Number three, it may bring them a network hosting deal, which would be tremendously valuable. It would accelerate their build-out potentially significantly. It would de-risk it, and it would lower their costs further. And Frankly, it makes a, a, a ton of sense. T-Mobile has to go and deploy Spectrum on all of the 85,000 towers that they're going to keep deploying Dish's Spectrum at the same time um, and then hosting it for them, uh, sharing a portion of the network uh, network expense uh, makes sense for both sides. Number four, finally, it would bring subs and MVNO in a national roaming deal, which w would no doubt add some value. Um, presumably generate positive free cash flow from the outset for DISH. But again, these are the least important elements on offer in our view. Slide number 16, we took a quick early stab at how much networking, uh, network hosting would lower the costs for, for the companies. It would lower deployment costs by, we think, at least $3 billion. This is an area we still have to, to do a fair amount of work. It would lower maintenance capex marginally because the deployment cost comes down. It would also lower network opex fairly materially, we think, by maybe $3 billion annually. Um, slide number 17, of course, these savings would have to be split with T-Mobile. Um, we would value the savings at about $34 billion, with most of that value coming from the NPV of the ongoing opex savings. That would be... $17 billion each if evenly split. This is, this is tremendously valuable to DISH, obviously, um, given where it's trading at the moment. Um, it's also an important source of value for T-Mobile. If DISH is entering the market and if T-Mobile is contributing to a lower cost structure for DISH that would allow DISH to, be, to price more aggressively, the assets they're buying from Sprint are worth less. Um, the savings from network sharing help offset this lost value. Slide number 18, assuming an even split of savings, DISH's cost per gigabyte would fall to $0.32, cents, um, and T-Mobile's would fall to $0.25 cents per former for a deal. 
Again, what I'd focus on here more than the absolute cost per gigabyte is the relative positioning of the various carriers. And it's, it's what, what this should highlight more than anything else is just how much of a cost advantage both T-Mobile and DISH would have on the other side of this. We focus the call mostly on DISH. However, the, the work we've done also highlights just how important this deal is for T-Mobile. It gives them by far the lowest unit cost in the industry. Their cost advantage over Verizon and AT&T would be tremendous. Anyone who thought that T-Mobile would be a benign oligopolist with this magnitude of cost advantage was mistaken in our view, to put it politely. They, they're going to have 45% of the industry's capacity, even with DISH as part of the industry, and 30% of the industry's revenue pro forma for the deal. We've always believed that they are going to go after the other 15% of the industry that they're owed and that they do it aggressively. If they get there, it would be a 50% increase in their market share. The the opportunity for T-Mobile is, is, is still tremendous in our view, even if they have to share some of that opportunity with DISH. Slide number 19, if our analysis is right, is more value in DISH than the market's appreciated. And the deal could increase that value. A, a deal with T-Mobile could increase that value further. Number two, if the, deal's transform, the, the, the deal is transformative for T-Mobile, it would be better if DISH wasn't entering the market and if T-Mobile didn't have to concede value to DISH, but T-Mobile still creates more value through the deal than they concede to DISH. Number three, we downgraded Sprint because we thought it was pricing in high odds of approval and because we thought if the deal was approved, there was a decent prospect that Sprint's consideration would be renegotiated. Press reports yesterday suggest that's happening. We'd still far rather just play this deal through T-Mobile, um, even though they're, you know, depending on how the renegotiation goes, if there is one, that there still may be upside for Sprint. Verizon and AT&T have performed well since this deal was announced on the expectation that they would benefit from more benign competition during an integration process and maybe even from market repair. If Dishon enters the market, the prospect of market repair, I, th I think, is unequivocally highly unlikely. Hopefully, the cost analysis we've done here better highlights for the market how unlikely it is. And, and, and in our view, it, it should ha highlight how unlikely market repair is, even if DISH never enters the market. Um, number five, DISH getting deployed is a mixed blessing for the towers. We've already assumed that DISH Spectrum would be deployed in our long-term forecasts. But if, the, if they end up network sharing with T-Mobile, the lease rates for the towers will be lower than we had previously presumed. And so this is a modest negative relative to our models. And finally, it's a modest positive to cable who may see a cheaper source of, of capacity for their wireless business. Slide number 20, some quick caveats. This work isn't finished yet. We haven't reviewed our final cost frameworks with the carriers although we got a ton of input from them while we were building the framework and the analysis. We have, in fact, it in millimeter wave spectrum into our analysis for AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile because, frankly, it's really hard given the kind of deployments they're doing. Our simplifying assumption for the time being until we figure out how to model it is that the vast majority of traffic at all three carriers is going to be carried over sub-six gigahertz bands for the foreseeable future. We haven't factored in C-band yet. The timing of the C-band is still highly, highly uncertain. 
we the, the work we've done here should highlight just how important this band is for Verizon and AT&T in particular. It also suggests that there may be at least one other bidder for that spectrum um, if DISH ends up pulling off this, this network deployment. And finally, we haven't done quite as much peer review um, as we would like with the analysis and its conclusions yet. That's something that is is still still ongoing. Um, having said all that, I'm, I'm confident in the broad thrust of the analysis and the conclusions here, but we aim to keep working on the framework and improving it, um, and some of the details may shift as we do. And with that, I will turn it over to questions. Again, we've got Blair on the line. The, the focus of this call is primarily on network economics and the impact that DISH could have by competing in the market on the on the market broadly. But we've got Blair on the line to the extent that you all have questions on where we stand from a regulatory perspective, given the news over the course of the last couple of days as well. The operator will give instructions for a question for questions in a second. You're always welcome to email questions to Ethan at ethan.lacy at newstreetresearch.com. Operator, can you give instructions for questions? Certainly. And ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question over the phone lines, please press star then one on your telephone keypad. Please note that if you're on a speakerphone, to please pick up the handset or to press your mute function to allow that signal to reach our system. Again, that is star one if you'd like to ask a question over the phone lines. And while we're waiting for questions to queue on the line, um, Ethan, let's start with questions that you've had emailed in. Yeah, uh, I've got quite a few. I, I guess maybe a, a great place to start would be the uh, the why let the fox into the hen house question, which I guess is when we think of winners and losers in the scenarios you lay out, the incumbents, uh, T and VZ are clear losers here. W- what are the reasons why DT and Teamus would go ahead with the transaction if the potential uh, disruption to the underlying industry is is as we lay out? Thanks. So, Ethan, based on all the reporting we've seen on the press, this hasn't been an easy decision process for DT and T-Mobile. They've done everything they can to limit the damage that Dish could could do um, by entering the entering the market. The if a deal ends up getting struck with these guys, it's going to be for one of two reasons. Firstly. What we laid out in the first 15 slides of the deck is that Dish, is, Dish ought to be able to enter the market without any help from T-Mobile at all. So from T-Mobile and DT's perspective, if Dish is coming in as a new entrant with 20% of the industry's capacity, do you want to face that threat with 100 megahertz of spectrum and the scale they have today or 300 megahertz of spectrum and the scale they would have in combination with Sprint. Or said another way, do you want to face Dish's disruptive pricing with a cost per gigabyte of a dollar or a cost per gigabyte of 25 cents? Um, I think that's the, the, primary, the primary driver of why it makes sense for Timo to do this, even though it might help Dish's market entry, because not doing the deal doesn't prevent Dish from coming into the market. And I'm not suggesting this is at all likely, but you could imagine a scenario where T-Mobile decides they don't want to enable Dish and they walk away from this deal. Dish finds funding uh, from from somewhere, builds this network out, comes into the market, disrupts it. And Dish at some point 
with the help of a, a strategic backer picks up Sprint in a year or two. And Dish is the one that ends up with 300 megahertz of spectrum sitting on top of an incredibly low-cost network. I think that would be a, a much, much worse outcome for T-Mobile than them picking up the capacity themselves. And then the second thing to, to focus on, which we touch on in sort of the second half of the slides, is there's so much value for T-Mobile uh, to capture from this deal. I think people have looked at this historically as, oh, it's a great deal because it drives some um, operating cost savings, maybe somewhere between 4 and $6 billion of savings a year, and that's got a value, and a lot of that value's already been priced into T-Mobile, um, and maybe it even drives some market repair and pricing goes up and it's a better it, it's a better industry overall. I don't think that really captures where the value creation from this deal is. I think you have to look at it in the context of T-Mobile ending up with 45% of industry capacity and by far the lowest cost per gigabyte in the industry if they're able to, to fill that capacity up. And I think that that gets you to much more value creation than the $43 billion of synergies than T-Mobile has has guided to, or it's, it's, a diff, it's a very different way of thinking about how value is created um, than just looking at the, at, at, the, at the synergy guidance in a traditional fashion. If you're T-Mobile um, in, in, in what's going to be a rapidly evolving industry over the course of the next five years with cable coming in, potentially other new entrants, new spectrum bands coming to market, you want to go into an increasingly commoditizing market with the lowest cost per unit possible. And this puts them in a position of having the lowest cost per unit as a starting point, which puts them in a, in a much stronger position to pick up more spectrum assets as they come to market and can continue building on that cost advantage and reinforcing the, the advantage over time. If you think of the, the business that Verizon's been able to create, the, the, they've got by far the most valuable wireless business on the planet. Um, the, there's, there's not another wireless business on, on the planet that comes, that comes close. And, and the business they have today stems from the fact that they had a tremendous cost advantage 20 years ago, um, and they've reinvested that advantage in continuously ensuring that they've got the best network and the best assets um, over the course of the last 20 years. And we've just seen um, a series of events which will potentially allow T-Mobile to, to eclipse Verizon in terms of cost advantage um, for, for the first time ever, and there'll never be another opportunity like this. So that's, I, I'm sorry, a long-winded answer uh, to the question. No, that's great. I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, I have quite a few more sort of on dish uh, as it relates to its operational strategy, but maybe just operator, are there any questions on the lines? Uh, currently, we had no phone questions, but again, that is star one on your telephone keypad. Got it. Jonathan, I, I think, you know, a lot of people are still trying to sort of imagine what DISH might look like in an actual sort of deployment strategy, uh, whether that would be sort of, you know, a preference for a retail or a wholesale model. You know, I guess, you know, there's certainly also a lot of questions about uh, how their relationship might evolve with cable. Uh, a few that I've gotten here are sort of, you know, whether or not we have a view on, 
you know, DISH being able to work with the cable industry. Obviously, there's, I guess, 25 years now that uh, Cable and Charlie are going to have been fighting over the video market. Uh, do we imagine a scenario where, you know, Cable and, and Charlie can get a wholesale deal done? So the answer at this stage is we've we've got no idea what the operating model DISH is looking to have when all of this is said and done is. They've made oblique references to Geo and Rakuten, who are both in the retail market, with similar kinds of cost advantages to what DISH is hoping to create here. So that they, that may be their aspiration. It's much easier for us to build a model around what DISH would look like as a wholesale provider. And and so that's, that's where we've focused our initial analysis, not because we think it's what DISH is specifically looking to do, but because it's the easiest to model. And our assumption would be if we can analyze the the, the value they can create as a wholesale player, um, it would only make sense for them to go into the retail market if they could create more value than that. And so establishing the, the, the value of a wholesale model is a, is a great starting point. If they set themselves up as a effectively a, a neutral host source of capacity for anybody who wants it, I can't imagine why the cable companies or anybody else who wants capacity on a wireless network wouldn't be willing to deal with DISH. It's true that those companies, you know, that DISH and the cable companies have been fierce competitors in the video market uh, for all the time that Ergen's been uh, in the DBS business. But I would say that was a function of them competing bitterly against each other uh, for uh, for subs and revenue. In a neutral host model, we'd assume that that DISH isn't really competing against the the cable industry um, in wireless. Um, you know, they're going to start off with a with a boost business, but I honestly don't think that's going to be the focus of value creation for DISH. Um, the 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 animosity of years of competing in the in the video business may still linger, but ultimately I think the, the company is going to do what's rational. And if they can get good capacity at a much cheaper price um, on better terms from DISH, um, it would make, it would make, it wouldn't make any sense for them not to take advantage of that. I would say that from everything Ergen says on the calls, he can't wait to put the video business behind them, uh, behind him. Hopefully, when he puts the video business behind him, he'll put all the animosity that's attached to it behind him as well. That's great. And then uh, I think, you know, not just sort of uh, questions that I'm getting, you know, right now, but also a lot of these look similar to some of the conversations and calls we've done since your note came out, which I would call sort of the dish pushback uh, type questions. And, uh, you know, one in particular is, Sort of, how do we think about, or, or why, you know, wouldn't this analysis be the same uh, for Sprint, uh, you know, just five years ago? In, in other words, why didn't this, you know, same argument work for Sprint, and why uh, would it work for Dish now when it clearly didn't work for Sprint? Thanks. So, I don't think it was ever tried for Sprint, Ethan. Our thought when Massa paid a pretty high price for Sprint was exactly this is what he had in mind, that he was going to spend money to deploy Sprint's incredibly valuable spectrum resources, end up with a lower cost per unit than anybody in the industry. 
and uh, capture a, a, a tremendous amount of market share. And we, we've got a pile of dusty old decks expressing that thesis, uh, starting going, going all the way back to the, the Clearwire days when Dish and Sprint first fought over Clearwire and carrying through the early years of, of SoftBank's ownership of Sprint. And the reality is, for a reason that perhaps we'll never understand, SoftBank was never willing to put a penny into Sprint beyond what they spent on acquiring the equity. And so the spectrum to this day has never been deployed. The vast majority of their two and a half gigahertz spectrum, which is where all the value for T-Mobile is, is sitting fallow today after, after more than half a decade of SoftBank owning that spectrum. The, the two and a half gigahertz spectrum that has been deployed has been deployed horribly on a cell site grid with almost half the density of the, of the other carriers. Um, and so what I would say for want of, for want of capital required to create this, this kind of value, um, the opportunity at Sprint was never realized. I, I would say that the, the analysis for DISH is a little bit different, though. So DISH is sitting there with 100 megahertz of spectrum, and they can go in and deploy it with a brand-new network that uh, has much lower uh, operating costs than everybody else's network. It's got no legacy issues um, at all. The network that SoftBank took over was a disaster of, of legacy issues. It had as, as, as many legacy issues as there was Spectrum, um, and so the and it had a legacy customer base um, and and a legacy a, a legacy company um, that that all created a much more difficult environment for Sprint to create the value that, that Dish can by starting from scratch. So the, the, think of it, in, it, it as an example in the context of airlines. The, the dish opportunity is like the JetBlue opportunity when they first launched. Brand new fleet of airlines, much more efficient, much lower cost to operate. Customers love it more because, uh, love it because the, the planes are all brand new. And so they start off with, uh, with a massive advantage. The buying sprint is like buying, I don't know what the old Russian national airline would be, um, with broke down DC-3s and DC-10s that are all 40 years old, um, that barely fly with horrible, uh, uh, fuel efficiency and a miserable, um, impl- base of angry employees, um, who don't want to work hard. Um, so the, 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 the creating this kind of value in the context of the, leg, the sort of the legacy issues that SoftBank had versus just starting brand new from scratch is much harder. SoftBank could have always done it in our view. They just they were never willing to put the capital in uh, to make it happen. Um, it's much easier for T-Mobile to capture the value that SoftBank was never willing to to capture because they're effectively going to shut down all the legacy issues. They're going to start off they, – they've built a, 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 a pretty 
uh, darn good network with the assets that they've got today. They're going to take 100 megahertz of Sprint Spectrum that's never been deployed and deploy it on their network on, you know, starting on day one and immediately improve the capacity, speed, and performance of the network they've already got. And then they start moving Sprint's customers over. And as they're moving the customers over, they move the rest of the spectrum over. And then they just shut down the legacy network um, and get rid of all of the, the problems and issues that go along with it. Um, and so in many ways, it's easier for T-Mobile in the context of a deal uh, to create this value than it was for SoftBank to create the value uh, in, in Sprint as a standalone entity. And it, on, in SoftBank's defense, I think they would probably say that was always the ambition. When they bought Sprint, they'd always planned to combine with T-Mobile. That was the way they were going to fix it. Initially, they thought they were going to buy T-Mobile. The way things ended up, it took so long, they ended up having to sell to T-Mobile. Um, but the, the, that's, the, that, that's the context in which, it, from SoftBank's perspective, perhaps it made sense to, uh, to capture this value. It was always going to be through a deal. That's great. Thank you. Aeroflow. Aeroflow. There we go. <laughs> um, and, and I guess another question that we've just gotten sort of on the pushback uh, coming from it less from sort of the sprint perspective, but from the dish perspective is what, why, why do we think dish has just waited so long to finally, you know, if this is real, you know, attack the market when they had spectrum for, you know, nearly a decade. So what dish would say in response to that is, because they were waiting for 5G, and 5G has just become available. In fact, it's not quite available yet. It's just about to become available. I, I, I think the reality is Dish, it, Dish's strategy with respect to the spectrum has evolved over time. I think they probably thought they were going to capture value by selling it to Verizon and AT&T. Um, and as AT&T and Verizon both went in different directions, Dish probably started looking at alternatives. Maybe they were looking at alternatives all along. It's difficult to know. Um, but a few things have happened in, in the course of the, the last couple of years that have paved the way for Dish to do this. So first of all, we saw Geo launch as a new entrant in India and completely obliterate all of the uh, virtually all of the competitors in that market um, and capture a, a massive share of what is a three-carrier market, potentially in, in Chris Hoare, our, our, our analyst's view, covers Geo, um, could, could become a two-player market. Um, and that was, a, that was a, a really exciting source of disruption to, to watch that I think Dish believes um, has many overlaps with the position that they're in. And then much more recently, we've seen Rakuten take some of the benefits, or some of the elements of the geo strategy and combine it with network virtualization to potentially have the same kind of disruptive impact on the market in Japan. And so that's given Dish a playbook um, that I don't think was 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 obvious to anybody before. Combine that with the the advent of 5G, which is just becoming available now. Um, it's I think it's those factors together which make this a really exciting opportunity for Dish 
um, dish right now. And it, it's, it's with one of those elements being 5G, which hasn't been available until um, sometime later this year. It just it hasn't been something they could pursue until now. That's great. Thank you. Um, I've had a lot of questions on uh, just sort of yesterday's headlines around renegotiating the exchange ratio. I, I understand it's complex and for a multitude of reasons, but do we have any initial thoughts on how to think about the value being conceded under the, a new exchange ratio for Sprint? I guess is it premature to think that all of the $7 billion synergy threshold from the merger agreement should you know, be passed on to DISH? And then I, I've had quite a few questions that just focus on risk to the deal involving, you know, Masa, you know, perhaps backing out of the deal falling apart under a renegotiation of, of price. And, and that's taken, you know, forms of like why would Sprint, you know, agree to a renegotiation assuming, you know, they're getting, you know, fair value for the asset divestitures. So thinking through the renegotiation is, is really difficult because it's going to be a function of a negotiation with very complicated negotiating leverage, complicated all the more so by the fact that the DOJ has given these guys this week to get this thing across the goal line. The If you start off from the perspective of equity, the price that Dish and Sprint agreed to assumed up to $7 billion of value lost through concessions and divestitures. So from an, from an equity, by equity I mean fairness perspective, if the, if the concessions and divestitures uh, come to $10 billion in value, well then really there's $3 billion in lost value that would be disproportionately borne by T-Mobile shareholders, and that wouldn't be fair. And so there, there ought to be a mechanism for the companies to adjust for additional value that's lost over and above the $7 billion threshold. And that will be the, the, uh, the starting point of the negotiation. How they calculate that, the value that's lost through this deal is, is exceptionally difficult. The, I've been told that the carriers, uh, have a formula for figuring out, um, how the, the value loss is calculated on various assets. I'm not sure that they would have contemplated DISH coming in as a new entrant when they set that formula up. Um, so I have no idea how they, how they calculate the, um, how they calculate the loss in value. But the pre- prevailing thought will be the assets we're acquiring are less valuable than we thought because of the concessions that we've undertaken in order to acquire them. And so we need to adjust the just the consideration for that. I think, to your point, what's most important for T-Mobile and for Sprint is getting this deal getting this deal done um, and quibbling over the consideration. Um, uh, is you know it would be crazy for them to for either either one to lose this deal for a difference in view over the consideration. And so I, I think both sides have. Limited, uh, limited negotiating leverage here. This is a, a, a necessary deal for both sides. You could very justifiably argue that it's more necessary for Sprint than it is for T-Mobile. I would counter that, you know, necessary is binary. And once, once, once you've determined that it's necessary for both sides, it, you know, limits the, 
the degree to, to which anyone can can genuinely genuinely walk away. The the, the fact that they had to get this all done is while sewing up a deal with Dish um, and with the DOJ and the SEC, all in the context of this week, I think sort of limits the the negotiating process even further. And so, I wouldn't surprised to, to be surprised to see a an adjustment in the in the exchange ratio in T-Mobile's favor, um, but it, it's unlikely to be devastating for Sprint because Sprint would just walk away. Um, if it, you know, the, the threat of Sprint walking away, if it was, um, um, would be would be too great to bear. Um, and and I don't think I, I wouldn't assume that it'll be all that. Um, uh, accreted to T-Mobile relative to what's already priced in um, uh, for the same reason. It, it does make us want to own T-Mobile and not own Sprint going into this thing, and, and it was fear of a renegotiation like this um, that made us downgrade Sprint um, a, a month or two ago, even when it looked like the odds of the deal going through were pretty good. That's great. Uh trying to get through uh, everything that's uh, come in here. I have one that's regulatory-related and one that's tower-related. I believe we have Blair on the line. Blair, if I can just pivot to you here briefly. Sure. The conditional approval is also dependent, obviously, on DISH living up to a lot of conditions like build-out, et cetera. Which, the question is just which agency will take on the responsibility of ensuring, ensuring compliance for, you know, whatever sort of final iteration the, the deal actually uh, looks like? And is that going to be the DOJ? Is that going to be the FCC? And I have one uh, follow-up on the state uh, AG perspective. Yeah. Thanks. Sure. Um, the tradition would dictate that it's primarily going to fall upon the FCC. The FCC has already agreed to take on enforcing a price regulation condition as well as um, taking on uh, a build-out um, condition. Uh, and so these other things are probably going to come under the jurisdiction of the FCC. Usually the DOJ stays away from um, kind of uh, doing this kind of enforcement, uh, which would be ongoing enforcement as opposed to a particular enforcement action. But, you know, there, there have been so many black swans on this deal. Um, I'm not sure the extent to which the past is prologue, but it's probably going to be the FCC. Now, this is actually... I think one of the things that will concern the states, because the FCC um, in the charter deal um, forced charter, I should say the charter timeline cable deal, forced charter certain conditions, which when the cheek pie took over, uh, they then loosened those conditions. And that is an argument to the court that whatever the conditions are, there are um, enforcement risks. Uh, I don't know how the court will deal with that. I'm just saying that that's there are uh, obviously one of the things we're preparing for is trying to evaluate uh, what the states will do if this deal is announced, and we'll have to see what the actual deal is. But it's uh, certainly um, uh, an interesting problem to have a bunch of enforcement conditions and the and, and to have the enforcement of those conditions, which of course occur in the future justify a merger which once it's approved cannot be undone so that's my answer to that one was there a second part of that question i'm sorry yeah i I guess you you touched on the state ags and and we've had a number of questions just for you know effectively trying to better understand how 
a court review complicates the whole process, you know, relative to the say, court review. Actually, you know, I, I would argue the court review is the process. Here's what I mean by that. As we stood there uh, with our conference call on the morning of May 20th after a jeet, I just said one because I was in California, uh, it was afternoon for most folks, uh, after a jeet uh, announced his support for the deal, there was a lot of, um, uh, there was a general view that this must have been coordinated. Um, uh, we just disagreed with that. But that we did, we did agree with the premise that um, Macon was likely to in some way do something that allowed him to say yes to the deal. His odds of saying yes went up significantly. In the early phases of that, um, the thought was just cause the divestiture to boost in some spectrum and then say whoever bought it was likely to be a fourth competitor. Once the state filed the lawsuit, that was something that was going to be challenged. I would argue that by virtue of filing the state lawsuit, whether Macon actually wanted it or not, which is a kind of interesting historical question we'll never know the answer to. It gave him the ability to essentially say to T-Mobile, look, I am going to say no because if, unless you strike a real deal, because if I say yes, we're going to lose in court together and I can't, I don't want to lose. So I, I think a lot of what's going on now is very much about either ending the litigation as quickly as possible or winning the litigation in court if the states decide to proceed. But the analysis, uh, in the first place of what the, of what the states decide to do, I think really has to wait for what the details of the, um, deal are. Obviously, if the details are as, um, our, our fundamental team, Jonathan and the team is assuming, and if the, uh, the debate that has kind of been raging for the last couple of days that you've been asking questions about, that'll be at the heart of both the state analysis and the court analysis, because it really is, does this fix the, Competitive problem caused by the uh, by Sprint essentially um, leaving the competitive playing field. And I guess the question, you know, some of the questions that we've gotten have been, you know, along the lines of from a state AG perspective, can we imagine a scenario where Dish is going to actually have to outline its business and operating model in order to establish that they really, you know, will be a fourth carrier competing for retail subs? Well, I think. Uh, as a practical matter, DISH is going to have to explain to Wall Street what it's doing. It's going to have to explain to uh, other folks what it's doing and that that public explanation uh, will be will be the evidence that T-Mobile's antitrust lawyers will argue in what's called litigating the fix and saying, look, here's an entity um, uh, that is going to compete and cause, to the extent that the states are alleging a harm, and remember in the complaint the harm was about $4.5 billion of price increases, they are going to argue that, you know, you take Jonathan's analysis, you're not going to see those kinds of price increases. In fact, you're going to see the opposite. Um, whether there's a formal presentation to the court, of course, depends a lot on what happens between now and the briefing. But uh, and we, we, we went through the initial answer of the companies to the court, um, and this was about two weeks ago, I think, and, and, and our view was, look, this is the best the companies have, and answers are, are not briefs, and therefore they are lacking in a lot of information. But based on that, it occurs to us the states have a very good chance of winning that litigation. 
Um, this deal obviously changes the probabilities. How much it changes it, we'll just have to see the details. But it absolutely will be central to uh, the trial if the trial is about does the fix uh, actually fix the competition problem. That's great. Thank you, Blair. And uh, I know we're coming up here on the hour. I've got a few I'd just like to close out with. Uh, some of these I would call sort of pushbacks on our assessment of winners and losers in our scenario analysis. And Spencer, I believe you're on the line, but obviously we sort of, uh, you know, in our initial cut, uh, uh, characterize this as a modest negative for towers. And, you know, definitely have had uh, a lot of people push back on that idea just in the context of, you know, DISH coming as a, a fourth entrant, you know, should be, you know, good uh, for uh, tower players. Uh, so if you could just sort of clarify, that'd be great. Yeah, hey, Ethan. Um, so, I mean, DISH entering the market versus never entering the market is absolutely um, a net positive for the towers. Um, it all depends on what your point of reference is. If you thought that, you know, DISH had, you know, was sitting on a bunch of fallow spectrum that would ultimately get deployed one way or another over the next five years, um, with or without a deal, um, then, you know, DISH deploying uh, via a network hosting agreement relative to a uh, Greenfield build is a modest negative. It's not a big negative, um, uh, but it's certainly incrementally negative. Um, and, you know, when we downgraded this sector a couple weeks ago, uh, we looked at a host of scenarios. Um, we looked at the current... Uh, our, our current assumptions for network deployment, um, both with DISH and the C-band getting deployed, and then uh, without DISH or with a C-band uh, with a Sprint C-Mobile merger. And, you know, this, you know, what the the scenario that is uh, probably most likely at this point, which is a deal uh, where DISH deploys their spectrum and the merger goes through, is uh, really the third best scenario um, out of four. Um, so, and, and it's incrementally, and the second best scenario would just be uh, DISH building a Greenfield network uh, and the C-band. Um, but so I guess, I think relative to most people's assumptions, and certainly relative to estimates that are in the market, DISH coming in is an incremental positive. Uh, but relative to our forecast, which had already assumed some benefit from DISH and 5G, a hosting agreement is a, a modest negative. That's great. Thank you. And then, Jonathan, I guess, you know, uh, pivoting to cable for you, we've characterized cable as sort of a, you know, a, this is a modest positive, you know, under sort of the assumption that, you know, cable would be a natural beneficiary of cheap capacity from DISH, assuming DISH sells capacity in the wholesale market. I guess this is cable sort of, you know, letting the fox into the in-house question. What is the risk that, you know, DISH goes after the home broadband market, given the cost advantage and, and excess capacity they have? And, you know, what is... How do we think about their, you know, potential or ability to disrupt the broadband market as a risk to cable? Thanks. So the, the I think it's it's really low, and the the reason for that is that twenty percent of the industry's wireless capacity is nothing in the context of the industry's broadband capacity. So if you think that roughly this number is a little bit old. Um, but I think still, still probably true. Roughly six percent of the industry's capacity um, is carried over wireless. 
Um, 94% of it is carried over wireline. Um, DISH's share of that 6% in the context of um, the traffic on, on wireline networks is just infinitesimal. If you were to look at it another way, we think DISH in wireless has a cost per gigabyte um, that's somewhere around 44 cents. That makes us really excited in the context of a market where retail pricing today is somewhere between 5 and 10 gigabytes a um, a, a month. When you look at the, co- the the revenue per gigabyte in um, in the broadband market, um, I can't do the numbers in my head, but it's probably uh, it, it's probably close to or even below um, Dish's cost per gigabyte of of 44 cents. It's just the the ARPU and broadband um, on a per household basis is much lower. The consumption in broadband uh, is much, much higher. And that's really what makes wireless substitution such a difficult proposition with spectrum frequencies below 6 gigahertz. Wireless substitution only really becomes a threat if you can unleash massive amounts of spectrum, um, like the spectrum in the milli- available in the, milli- the millimeter wave bands. And the, the, but the issue with that is that it, it costs an, a, a huge amount of money to deploy it. You're effectively deploying fiber to within um, a few hundred feet of everybody's home and making the last connection wirelessly. And the capital required to deploy that kind of fiber density um, is enormous. It's something in 2017 we were worried that Verizon might be contemplating. It seems to be the far, farthest thing from their mind based on their deployment so far. But what you really need to make wireless substitution a threat is is much, much more capacity than DISH has or than all of the carriers have collectively in bands below 6 gigahertz today. That's great. Thank you. And then uh, I know we're up on the hour, Jonathan. I'm going to end it with you uh, with what I would call a DISH sort of deployment question, and we combine it with one of the typical questions that I, I, we keep getting on just pushback, which is, one, you know, how do we think about the timeline of when DISH, you know, could build out a network to offer service on its own network versus the MVNO? And then I'm going to sort of parlay that into the idea of how do we think about that in the context of their 5G time-to-market advantage, and, and we've had a lot of pushback you know, in the context of things like, you know, won't the incumbent networks look like Dish's network in just a few years? Thanks. So I'm going to bring Vivek on to talk through the network deployment assumptions um, in a sec. But before I do, I would say that we don't let, – let's assume that they deploy this capacity in conjunction with T-Mobile while T-Mobile is upgrading their network. It's Let's assume the deal now closes at the end of this year and T-Mobile starts in earnest on network integration in the first quarter of 2020. Um, I I think we've assumed, Vivek, you can correct me on this, but we've assumed a network integration process from soup to nuts for T-Mobile of three years. So if they start in January 2020, they're they're done in December 2022. By the end of 1Q 2020, There'll be a bunch of markets in which Dish's Spectrum will be deployed, available, available for use, 
um, for anybody who wants capacity in those markets. And I would presume that Dish strikes an MBO deal with T-Mobile that allows them them to use that capacity in um, in those markets uh, uh, immediately. By end of 2Q, there'll be a bunch more markets with capacity available. By the end of 3Q, more markets still. The end of 4Q, um, more markets still. It's it's by midway through 2021, um, they may have capacity in substantially all of the top 100 markets. Um, and, it, you know, it might be that, that T-Mobile is building out the least dense, least important markets in the second 18 months of a, of a three-year deployment. I think the deployment looks different if they're deploying the network on their own without T-Mobile's help, and, and I'll ask Vivek to address that. Hey, yeah. So, you know, I think that one of the really key things to remember here is that, you know, all of the carriers have pretty much all of their spectrum or a huge chunk of it on LTE today. And they've all said that LTE is going to continue in a world of 5G. They're going to have their spectrum allocated to LTE for a pretty long time. And they may be able to refarm pieces over time to 5G. But, you know, we explicitly forecasted the sort of band-by-band refarming in a way that we thought was intelligible. And we still have DISH uh, sort of having superior spectral efficiency even in five years' time to most of the existing carrier networks. So that sort of, uh, you know, notion that everyone's going to have an all 5G network in a few years I don't think is quite right. The carriers are still going to have a boatload on 4G, and a handful of them might even have some 3G traffic and equipment still up and running. And just to cement that, if you think that first the – the uh, the first uh, 3G equipment started to be deployed in 2002. Is that right, Spencer? So 2002, 2G, uh, 2G equipment started to be replaced by by 3G. Do the carriers still have 2G networks today? 17 years later. Um, so transitioning all of your capacity off of a live loaded network onto a um, onto a brand new standard, it takes a takes an in, incredible uh, amount of time. Um, even when the old network standard is totally obsolete, remember that LTE and 5G were designed to run side by side uh, for much of the foreseeable future. It's the the current view on the evolution of 4G into 5G is that. You, you get upgrades to LTE over time, um, which have LTE and 5G uh, converging um, into a common standard at some point in the future. Um, but it's, that's going to take – it's going to take, you know, it would, if, we, if the experience of, of getting rid of 2G is, is anything to go by somewhere between a decade and two decades to get to that point, the, the last thing – I would just add is if Dish is building the network on their own, um, I think the way we've modeled it is we've stretched that three-year deployment time frame in conjunction with T-Mobile uh, to five years if they had to deploy it on their own. Dish would have to go out um, and build a lot of capabilities that they don't have today, put a team together. That would take time up front. I think the process of zoning and permitting, um, if they're starting from scratch on their own, would take a lot longer, um, and so I, I would imagine it would take them a solid five years um, to build the build the network 
if they did it on their own. And the the first 15 slides in our deck um, assume the the longer build out time frame. Um, and with that, um, I think we have to to wrap up there. Thank you all for joining us, uh, Vivek Spencer. Um, uh, Blair and myself are all available to the extent that any of you have questions um, that we didn't manage to get to on the call. I know there are a lot we didn't manage to address, um, but we'd love to keep the dialogue and the debate going as we continue refining and improving on this analysis. Thank you all. And again, ladies and gentlemen, that does conclude today's call. We thank you again for your participation. You may now disconnect.